Alex, I don't know if you ever heard this from your college, but I definitely heard it from mine. This notion that yes, it cost a boatload of money for you to come here, but guess what? We're actually giving you a break. The education you're getting actually costs more than what you're paying, so you should feel happy. You're getting a deal. I've definitely heard that argument made. Yeah, it's out there. I was talking to people at Duke University about the cost of college, and again, it was one of the first things they mentioned. They said the sixty thousand dollars it costs to attend Duke each year—that's a discount. We are investing, on average, about ninety thousand dollars in the education of each student. Jim Roberts is executive vice provost at Duke, and a lot of schools tell the same story: we're paying way more per student than we're collecting. And the emotional logic of this argument is clear. Even though the sticker price of college is rising every year, you are still getting a deal, students, because what you get as an undergraduate is worth even more than what you're paying. So we decided to really dig into this argument. I went down to Duke and looked through their books with them. They laid out for me exactly where every single one of those ninety thousand dollars per student goes. Hello, and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Lisa Chow, and I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today on the program, we are going to consider that argument that sixty thousand dollars a year for an undergraduate education is an amazing deal, like getting a fur coat from a cousin who sells it wholesale. And we'll also look at the counter argument that you're not getting a deal, and in fact, when you pay sixty grand per year, you're buying a bunch of other stuff that you'll probably never use. Actually walked me through the ninety thousand category by category, and there are three big buckets that jump out at you. And you can see the first one just walking around campus. This is the last part of a renovation of the library, which Mike Schoenfeld is in, vice president uh, of public affairs at Duke, and he takes me on a tour of campus. The library is one of several buildings under some kind of renovation. He takes me inside. This is one of the most active buildings on campus. So it's always open twenty four hours. Uh huh. God, I'm trying to remember when I was in school. I don't think our libraries were open 24 hours. I mean, we would go into a special phase during finals when、mm-hmm. places would be open 24 hours, but that was so. Now these days, libraries are open 24 hours. College campus is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week enterprise. And this was a consistent theme, Lisa, as you were tra- <laughs>、yes. touring around Duke, right? How much things have changed? Yes, I felt very old. <laughs> Duke is way fancier than I remember college being. Duke's campus features a huge technology center with a technical support team on hand, twenty four seven, to assist with any computer problems. There's a huge student center with shops and restaurants, a smoothie shop. There's a rec center with a climbing wall. And Schoenfeld says you would find the same thing on any elite. Research university campus anywhere in the country. He says college campuses are changing in this way because students have changed. Thirty years ago, forty years ago, fifty years ago,、uh, it was not unusual at all for children to share bedrooms. So coming to college and having a roommate was that was no big deal. We know for a fact empirically, houses now have more bedrooms than they did thirty years ago, forty years ago, fifty years ago. Fewer people are who are coming to college are sharing rooms. Therefore, they have less experience with roommates. Therefore, they don't want roommates. Well, they、mm-hmm. don't. They don't want to be nineteen years old and arrive in college after having had their own room and bathroom for, for their whole lives and、uh, and find out they have to share a two hundred square foot room with a roommate. So there's a there's a, a increasing pressure and demand for different kinds of living facilities. 
Likewise with dining. Um, the, the idea that you would have vegetarian, vegan, vegan um, low-carb, gluten-free, you know, peanut-free, uh, those standards, and whether you're at Duke or any other place like us, those, you know, those standards have evolved considerably over the years. So if you take the cost of all of this stuff, you know, the renovated library, the expanded student center, the vegan and peanut-free dining options in the dining hall, the bigger dorms, all that sort of stuff. You add that all together, basically that gets you 21000 out of that 90000 that Duke is saying it spends per student. And there's something really interesting going on here about the economics of an institution like Duke, a prestigious university that's trying to attract the best students. Right. They're in a competition for, like, you know, the valedictorians of the land. Right. <laughs> right. But they're not really able to do what businesses often do when they're in a competitive environment, drop their price to attract customers. Right. Duke says that there's research that actually shows that when you drop your price, people associate a drop in price with a drop in quality. So there's no incentive for Duke to drop their sticker price. Right, because it does the opposite of what a price drop usually does. It, it right. discourages people from <laughs> consuming your services. So what they end up doing is competing in this other way, providing more services, more amenities. There are certain things we have to do to be competitive. Um, and and that's, why, that's why we're renovating the student center. We know that we, know that we, have, we have to do that. It's not just... It's not, it's not only to foster inter, in, intellectual interaction. It is also to provide a serv, services and, and amenities to students and to their parents who, who demand, demand things. So that's number one. 21,000 of the 90,000 goes to this uh, sort of amenities arms race. <laughs> that brings us to category number two. Right. Another 20,000 of the 90,000 that Duke says it spends per student goes to a particular and sizable segment of the undergraduate population. I joke around that, like, I call them normal people. When you say normal people, so the normal people are people who are people like you. Getting financial aid. That's what I consider normal people, yeah. Tara Mooney is a sophomore and one of the roughly 50% of students who receive financial aid. Or as she calls that, 50% normal people. And to be clear, most of Duke's financial aid recipients have to repay some portion of their aid. It comes in the form of grants and loans. But Tara is an extreme case. She's one of several hundred students who pays nothing at all. Her parents are divorced, and her mom raised her, her brother, and sister alone. Right about the time Tara was applying to college, her mom lost her job at a public school. My mom, when I first got the admissions email, we were all very excited and stuff. But when we saw the aid package is when my mom and I started crying because we knew that I could actually come here because they were going to give me enough money that it was actually possible. Peter Lang is Duke's provost, and this is a point that he stresses. That $60,000 price tag, not only is it not enough to cover all the costs of an undergraduate education, half the people at the school aren't even paying it. For those who are paying full freight, the full sticker price, their tuition dollars are supporting students who otherwise could not afford to come to Duke. And that is, in a way, tuition redistribution. And the people who are paying full freight, according to Duke, are people who by and large can afford it. People like Max Duncan. He's a freshman at Duke that you met, Lisa. My mother is a lawyer and my dad is a banker. Duncan's parents pay the full $60,000 price tag for his college education, which will add up to about a quarter million dollars when all is said and done. When I was beginning to apply to colleges, they basically gave me the mindset that I didn't need to worry about whichever school was going to charge me the most. 
for them, they just wanted me to have the best education I could possibly have. So the argument that Duke makes is that the rise in tuition is basically just tracking the rise in incomes at the top of the income distribution. The story that we've heard that the 1% just continue to get richer and richer, the sticker price of college is going up commensurate with that. And in this scenario, Duke and a lot of other elite universities are saying, listen, we're sort of like Robin Hood. You know, we're taking full tuition from the rich and upper middle class and giving some of it back to the poor and middle class students who otherwise wouldn't be able to attend our university. And there is something to that. But there's also something weird about the accounting here. They're counting that money they give in financial aid as money they're spending. But you could count it simply as price discrimination, charging different prices to different people, something airlines and lots of businesses do all the time. But anyway, in, in Duke's accounting, financial aid is a big chunk of that 90000 it's spending per student, about twenty grand. So to recap... We had 21 grand spent on dorm rooms and buildings and food. We have another 20,000 spent on financial aid. That gets us to 41,000. You add in a bunch of other stuff. You add in health care for students. You add in administrative costs, human resources. You add in the million dollars that it's paying its president and the half a million dollars it pays a bunch of other administrative people. That eventually gets you to 69,000 out of the 90,000 Duke says it's spending. That leaves 21,000 left over. And that 21000 is one of the single biggest chunks that Duke says it's spending per year. It goes to pay for faculty. Right. People like this. Yeah, we've been snowed in now since about Wednesday afternoon. They still haven't gotten plows kind of anywhere near where we are. So there's kind of no way out right now. I caught Professor Jennifer West at her home in North Carolina during a recent snowstorm. You've published in more than 150 peer-reviewed journal articles, and you hold 14 patents, and you've won Mm -hmm. a ton of awards. Texas Innovator of the Year a couple years ago. West is a highly sought-after academic superstar, a professor of bioengineering and materials science with a long list of publications, awards, and titles. And you've been named Admiral of the Texas Navy? Yes. (laughs) What's that about? So that's the highest honor the Texas governor can bestow on a civilian. To hire West away from all the other people who want to hire her and dislodge her from her former employer, Rice University, it wasn't enough just to offer her lots of money. She came with an entourage. I moved a whole entire research group with me. So I had to move a lot of people. And then we had to... Uh, move a lot of our equipment and rebuild our lab. So they actually built a, kind of a lab from the ground up for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they actually sent architects to Rice who looked at our lab facilities there and looked at, you know, a lot of our specialized equipment needs and um, then used that information to go back and design the facility that would work for us at Duke. And there are a lot of Jennifer West situations at Duke. Duke pays what it calls startup costs, which is, you know, basically essentially building you a lab and hiring you a team for a lot of professors, not surprisingly, mostly in the sciences. So there, in a nutshell, is Duke's case and the case for pretty much every elite research university in the country. Yes, we cost a lot, but we give you so much more fancy buildings, generous financial aid packages, the world's leading scientists. And this story, it drives Charles Schwartz crazy. If you want to know what's the cost of providing undergraduate education, it's just wrong to bundle all those costs together 
and present that. But that's what's done by Duke University, by the University of California, and as far as I can tell, by all other top research universities throughout the country. Schwartz is a retired physics professor. He worked for a long time at the University of California at Berkeley. And in his retirement, he's taken sort of an interesting hobby. He has been studying university finances. He's been doing it for the past 20 years. And he says it is not fair to put what Duke pays professors like Jennifer West into that $90,000 per student calculation. He says, think about where Jennifer West spends her time. She's in a lab. She's doing her research. She's publishing papers. She's working with graduate students. The majority of her time is not spent with undergraduate students. Schwartz says to get the real cost of an undergraduate education, you have to strip out all the costs that are associated with professors' research and the time they spend with graduate students and the time they spend publishing papers. He says that shouldn't count against the undergraduate cost. Peter Lang, Duke's provost, disagrees. He says Duke professors engaging in research benefits the undergraduate students. If, for instance, you try to say, well, none, nothing about the time the faculty member does research redounds to the benefit of the undergraduate when he or she is in the classroom, then I guess you can do the accounting a completely different way. I think that's a, a deep misunderstanding of how, at least at a place like Duke, and I would certainly expect the same thing to be true at Berkeley, at least at a place like Duke, how the actual educational delivery happens. In the end, Schwartz and Lang from Duke don't really disagree on the value of what goes on at places like Berkeley and Duke. Schwartz is fine with buying a great researcher a new lab. He would be in favor of that. The disagreement is really over the story that a place like Duke tells its undergraduates about that lab and about a lot of the other stuff that goes on there. Charles Schwartz thinks that lab, it doesn't have much to do with the undergraduate educational experience, and therefore its cost shouldn't be counted against the undergraduate price tag. And as long as we're talking about this story, right, that these universities are telling us, there is this other question I have about the emotional logic, at least, of that story. Okay, so by saying, as these universities do, that you're paying 60 grand, but you're getting 90 grand in return, it makes it seem like the university is sort of doing the undergraduates a favor, that they're providing Jennifer West to the undergraduates simply to sort of burnish their educational experience. But of course, Jennifer West brings huge benefits to Duke by herself. First of all, in the prestige she awards the university, but also she brings in lots of actual cash money. They can use her to get wealthy alumni to donate money. Lots of money in federal grants. Jennifer West, in fact, brings in more than a million dollars a year in federal grants to Duke. And the same with lots of other highly sought after academics that they end up recruiting and landing. Like those people bring money with them. So it's not just on the backs of the undergraduate students. So if you're a student at Duke, are you getting a massive discount on the cost of your education? Or are you subsidizing a giant educational edifice that you as an undergraduate student will barely come into contact with? And the answer, it sort of depends on what kind of student you are. If you're the type of student who's engaging professors in their research, maybe you're working in their lab or working on a senior thesis, you're capitalizing on a professor like Jennifer West's expertise. If you're that type of student at an undergraduate level, you're probably getting something more than what you paid for. If you've got a good financial aid package, you're definitely getting a deal. But if you're a full-paying student who's not learning much from professors outside the classroom, and let's be honest, that's a lot of people. It was certainly me. Definitely me too. It is the university 
who's getting the deal, at least when it comes to the money. Say the things no one else will ever As always, we'd love to hear your questions, comments, concerns. Please write to us at planetmoney at npr.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify. And I want to take a special moment here to thank Lisa Chow. Lisa, this is your very last podcast with us here at Planet Money. You are going on to a really exciting job at 538.com, which is that Nate Silver data crunching extravaganza. (laughs) (laughs) You just started and you're going to be working there full time right now, right? Yes. You're moonlighting to finish this podcast. (laughs) Yes, I am moonlighting. (laughs) We're really, really excited to see all the cool stuff that you do over there. And uh, we're looking forward to following you there. Thanks so much, Alex. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Alex Bloomberg. I'm Lisa Chow. 